Now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 6, and we'll be reading from verse 33 uh, down to the end of the chapter. You can find this on page 284 if you're following along in the Pew Bible, and I will be reading from the New King James Version, which is the same translation that you have in the Pew Bible there. Uh, We've been working through uh, the story of Gideon, as we said, the longest of the judges' stories, and uh, pausing to spend a little time because there are some very interesting things that happen in the way uh, that Gideon is called. And you'll remember that God appeared uh, to Gideon and called him a mighty man of valor uh, while Gideon was hiding, uh, showing no valor whatsoever, and uh, calling him to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Midianites who were coming in and eating all of their food. And uh, so last time, uh, God gave uh, uh, Gideon a preliminary job to do, and Gideon tore down the Baal altar in his own community. It was kind of a first step that God wanted him to address the idolatry in his own uh, neighborhood before he was going to go out and deal with uh, the bigger problem with the Midianites. And now today we come to what probably is the most well-known Uh, of the the stories related to Gideon, and that is the story of Gideon and the fleece. And so uh, we'll hear what God will say to us uh, through this story. This is the word of God. Then all the Midianites and Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, And the Ebezrites gathered behind him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up up to meet them. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowlful of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. And there will in the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. Last week I went up to Carmel to see... A doctor about my hip, I'm having some orthopedic problems. They tell me this is old age. I don't believe it. And as we were driving away from there, I saw a shiny new building with a massive banner on the side of the building saying, Mercy Road Church. And these giant banners with smiling, beautiful people and the slogan of the church Live boldly. Live boldly. Great slogan. Great slogan. And, and it would be really wonderful um, 
In fact, if I lived boldly, courageously, uh, fearlessly, uh, but unfortunately, uh, that doesn't really describe how I live my life or how most people live uh, their lives. Often I am cautious, I am faltering, I am wavering. So there's the slogan on the one hand, and then there's actual life where we often don't live boldly like God might want us to. And then what do we do? What do we do? Well, I went to the church's website to find out what we do. I couldn't find the answer if you're actually not able to live boldly. The scripture, however, points us to the solution. And that solution is a gracious God who is patient with you when you fail to live how you should. A God who condescends to you and who encourages you when your faith is faltering and weak. And this is what Gideon needed at this point in this story. When he is facing a task that is impossible for him to do on his own. And God condescends to him to encourage his faith. And so this really is the message of the passage that I want us to get today. When your faith falters, look to Jesus as your source of assurance. And as we look at this passage, we'll see how this comes out. When your faith falters, not if, but when your faith falters, look to Jesus as your source of assurance. And children, if you're going to draw a picture, I'd like you to draw a Gideon and this fleece. Okay, and you'll have to listen what we learn about Gideon. But what is he doing with this fleece? Now, uh, I brought a little show and tell. This isn't actually a fleece, but it sort of looks a little bit like a fleece. So a fleece would have been a piece of hide from a sheep that still had the fluffy um, wool on it. And so someone might have a piece of fleece that you could uh, use as sort of as a pillow or something soft to lie on. Or in this case, something would, that would absorb moisture. And the liquid would get in it almost like a sponge. And then you could squeeze it and the liquid would come out. All right, so you keep that in mind and see if you can draw a picture for me as we work our way through this passage. Well, there is an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. You'll see the first thing we want to notice there is that eventually you and I will have to face a moment of truth. Uh, you remember last week we were, that Gideon was, was a man nobody knew about, and God begins to introduce Gideon to the people as their deliverer by giving us the, him this job of just tearing down this altar to Baal in his own community. And so he does that, and remember, everyone hailed him as a hero and said, let's follow Gideon, right? No, that's not what happened. They said, kill the man who tore down the Baal altar. So he was uh, at the point of losing his life uh, when God stirred in the heart of his own father, a man called Joash, to stand up and to defend his own son. And remember, Joash says, well, we don't need to do this. Let's let the idol Baal uh, speak for himself and act for himself. And so he saves Gideon. So Gideon is going from obscurity now uh, to the position of leadership. And they're just beginning to recognize him. And so in verse 33, uh, it says that all the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the east, gather together 
and they cross over and encamp in the Valley of Jezreel. Now remember that these people were sort of nomadic. They're coming up from the south and the east. They don't want to rule Israel. They don't want to govern Israel. They just want to come in during harvest time and eat all the food and then go back to wherever they go back in the south uh, later. So what's, and this has been going on for seven years. So what's happened here is that it must be harvest time. And so now uh, this annual uh, event happens where all the Midianites come into the land uh, to eat the food. And it says they go to the valley of Jezreel. So in the northern part of Israel, this is a valley that runs from just south of the Sea of Galilee all the way out to the Mediterranean coast by Mount Carmel. And this even today is the best farmland in Israel. So this massive valley uh, that was well watered with uh, the streams running through it. And this is where their crops are and the best farmland is. So this is why they come and they settle in this area. They're going to feed their livestock, their families on the food that Israel has been growing. And so this is why we say this becomes a moment of truth for Gideon. It's all been theory up to this time, but God calling him to do this job is now facing him with this moment of truth. Now, now children, so as you understand what a moment of truth is, uh, this is like um, you've been studying for your test, and now you sit down with your pencil in hand to take the test, right? So now this is the moment of truth. Or you've been memorizing your speech that you have to give, and so you've practiced but now you're standing up in front of the teacher and the class and you're going to speak. Or if you uh, want a sporting analogy, you're stepping into the batter's box, the game is on the line, and now you have to hit where something is at stake. This is the idea that Gideon faces the moment of truth. And it had to be when these invaders came. Right? He wasn't given the job to chase them down into the desert but to de defeat them when they came up. So now they've come up, and now it's time for Gideon to act. And so it's crunch time for him. Now, I know we have a number of students who've acted in plays, who've played their instruments in bands, who've sung for their choirs. And you understand, you have lots of dress rehearsals and practices, but eventually you're standing on the stage, and the pressure is on you and you have to perform. Now, one of our daughters, a number of years ago, uh, was asked to play taps on her trumpet. Uh, but it wasn't just any uh, event. It was the Veterans Day celebration that Governor Pence had decided to show up to uh, sort of last second. And so uh, I can tell you that was a moment of truth uh, for this girl, this little sophomore, uh, to play her trumpet uh, for the governor. Now you and I are not uh, likely to be in a situation where we have to lead an army uh, like Gideon was. But the point is that for each one of you at different points in your life, you face these kinds of moments of truth that are, that are tests, tests of your faith. And so all the things that you say you believe about God are going to be put to the test. You say right, that God, uh, that God loves me, has a, a perfect plan, that, uh, that all things happen for good uh, for those who love God. And then 
One day it's you or your loved one who receives a very bad diagnosis. So how do you respond in that moment? You say that you believe God's plan for your life is good. And then you lose your job or a relationship is fractured that you value. And then you find out, do you really believe these things? Is your faith really ready for the moment of truth? And so in various ways, in various situations, you and I will face our own moments of truth, just as Gideon did here. Secondly, your only hope in these moments is God's spirit working in you. Uh, So we've been introduced to this great conflict, right? We think the conflict's between the Midianites and the Israelites, and yet there's another power at work, a greater power. It is Yahweh, the covenant God, working through his spirit. And so verse 34 tells us, but the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Now, uh, when it uses this language, this means that God sent his spirit to empower to equip Gideon for the task at hand. Now, later in this book, we're going to read about the spirit coming on Samson. And specifically, it tells us that that meant Samson had tremendous strength. It doesn't say that's exactly what's happening uh, in Gideon's case. It may be in Gideon's case that this gave Gideon this sort of command presence uh, that, that, that just caused other people to rally to him. Uh, But something happened in Gideon that equipped him for this job of leading his people against this invading army. And so uh, it says in the second half of verse 34 that he blows the trumpet and the Abiezrites gathered behind him. So these are the people of his clan. Remember, these are the people who wanted to put him to death just a little bit before this. Now he blows the trumpet and they are rallying to him. This is the evidence of God's spirit working, that that something has happened in Gideon that the other people recognize, and something indeed is happening in their lives, and they're rallying to this call. Furthermore, verse 35 tells us he sends messengers more broadly beyond the, the hearing of the trumpet, and they go throughout the tribe of Manasseh. That's Gideon's tribe, but they also then go to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, the neighboring tribes. These are all tribes up near the Jezreel Valley where this invasion has occurred. And and the evidence, again, that that the spirits at work is that these people are coming. Uh, This man from this no-name family who nobody's ever heard of is rallying the people, and it's happening because it's God's spirit uh, that is at work. And this reminds us that that is the only hope you or I ever have of accomplishing anything important for God. I put a cross-reference in your outline there from Zechariah 4, verse 6. And there it says, So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by, my, uh, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And in this context... Uh, How is the temple going to be rebuilt? Jerubbabel, how are you going to lead the people and rebuild the temple? Well, God says it's not by your power, it's not by your ingenuity, it's not by your stick-to-itiveness, it's by my spirit, God's spirit working through his people. That's how God accomplishes his purpose. And you and I need to give thanks that God does send his spirit into the lives of his people. No one would ever come to faith in Christ 
apart from the Holy Spirit working in our hearts to give us new hearts. But we have a tremendous advantage over the Old Testament saints like Gideon. Uh, The Holy Spirit doesn't come on people and then leave people as we read about in the Old Testament. The New Testament tells us after Christ resurrected from the dead and ascended to heaven, he sent the Spirit in a new way that every person who is a believer in Christ is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it's that Holy Spirit that enables us to grow in faith and in grace, to battle sin, to love others, yes, to live boldly. All that only happens as the Spirit works in our lives. 2 Corinthians 5, 5. Now he who prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This, this, can, this, this shows us the Spirit's work in our lives, that God has indeed taken us as his children. And Jesus specifically encourages us to pray for the Spirit. He said in Luke 11, verse 13, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That we ought to pray that God's Spirit would be strong in us and be growing in us, and that this would enable us to be the people, the men, the women, the children that God wants us to be. Well, thirdly, we see in our text that the presence of God's Spirit, although necessary for us to serve God, does not mean that you will not lack assurance at some point in your life. I could not figure out how to write this without the double negative. Apologize. Hopefully, it's clear enough. The presence of God's Spirit does not mean you won't lack assurance at some point. So look then at verse 36, which really should be arresting to us. So Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, if, where did this if come from? God has clearly told him, I will save Israel by your hand. He says it back in verse 14 of this chapter. Furthermore, God has appeared to him uh, to confirm this word, and God has made him a mighty man of valor. You remember that God appears to him and says, you mighty man of valor. And he basically says, I'm no mighty man of valor. Well, now he's commanding an army of thousands of people who have rallied to him. He literally is a mighty man of valor leading an army. And yet he's saying, God, if, if you're going to do something. And um, I will say this is probably uh, the most misunderstood Uh, one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible, certainly with regard to Gideon, because the way this passage is often interpreted is that Gideon is seeking guidance from God. And so Gideon is sort of saying, and we we could be like Gideon by saying, Lord, if you want me to take this job, then uh, have them call me before noon tomorrow. Right? You ever heard this? I mean, and some, some religious leaders actually promote this as, a, this as a way that we should seek guidance. But that's not what's going on here at all. Gideon isn't asking God, what should I do? He knows what he should do. He's already been told. And in fact, Gideon says two times here, as you have said. So he knows exactly what God has said. There's no question. It's not about guidance. There's no guidance going on here. It's about needing assurance. His faith is faltering. God, 
Are you really going to do this? God, are you going to come through? Are you the one that can deliver and make this happen? It isn't about what should I do. And so Gideon proposes two tests. The first we could say is sort of a natural sign. The second is a supernatural sign. And we'll talk more about this in just a few minutes. Now we could all say about Gideon, well, Gideon, you had the word of God. And that should have been enough. And it should have been enough. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. And he needed more. And before we're too hard on Gideon, realize that Gideon was living in a time where he didn't have a completed Bible. He didn't have the Holy Spirit poured out on believers in the same way that's happened since the time of Christ. He didn't have the fellowship of a church uh, of, of the resurrected Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, with the same means of grace that go with it. In other words, he lacked many of the advantages that you and I have. And so we probably need to be a lot more understanding about why he might have doubted the word of God. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at various times in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. We live in the period of time after the Son has come and God's fuller revelation has been revealed to us. And so Gideon reaches the moment of truth and he looks down at this massive horde, over 100,000 people that he's supposed to defeat and his faith wavers. His faith falters. He begins to hyperventilate a little and uh, the enormity of what God has asked him to do starts to weigh on him. He needed help. Uh, Back in 2008 at our denominational um, international conference, the The conference was also kind of on the side uh, celebrating the 200th anniversary of our denominational seminary. And because at the time I was the president of the seminary board, uh, I was asked to preach at the evening worship service. And so um, that was something I had prepared for, I had practiced, I had prayed about. I trust that God's spirit was working in my life, and yet as I sat there and looked out as a, at around 900 people or something like that in the completely packed auditorium, uh, I would say my faith started to waver. I, I started to get almost into a panic attack. And so, in fact, one of my friends said later, you looked awful up there. What was going on? And, uh, you know, by God's grace, once I got started, I, I got over it. Okay. But uh, Fear or doubt can creep in. It doesn't mean you're not a believer. Uh, In fact, our our confession says, and I put this in there just a little bit from Confession of Faith 18.4, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, 
and intermittent. And if it's true that you can have your, sal- your, your, your assurance of salvation shaken, then certainly the assurance uh, that you can accomplish some task in the moment can be shaken. The, the, your salvation, the reality of your salvation, and the subjective feeling of confidence that you have are two totally different things. Now, we want them to be related, but we, we see lack of assurance as a temptation, as a, as a thing we struggle with, as something we want to get back our assurance. But it doesn't mean you're not a believer. We're told in the scripture that Gideon is one of the heroes of the faith. But as a hero of the faith, he struggled with his assurance in this moment. And that might happen to you and to me as well. The presence of the Spirit in your life doesn't mean that you won't lack assurance at times. Well, fourthly, we want to praise God that he patiently bears with you and your wavering faltering faith. So Gideon's army is uh, gathered on the the hills around this valley and they're looking down and seeing this great multitude would see the campfires of of the Midianites as far as the eye can see. And it seems that Gideon gets alone with God here and he's on a a threshing floor. It tells us in verse 37. So you remember when God first appeared to him, he was on a makeshift threshing floor that he had created out of a wine press because he was hiding. So now he's at a real threshing floor, which means he's at a stone surface high on a hill uh, where they would throw the grain up into the air and the wind would blow it and it would separate the grain from the chaff. And probably what had been done is that they had dug down through the dirt, it's not very deep usually, to the bedrock, and you create kind of a stone surface. And, and that's where he is. And he asked God to assure his faith in this kind of a setting. So he's going to work through this fleece that we were talking about children. So what he proposes is that he'll put the fleece on the threshing floor And if there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand. Well, so what's the idea here? Well, remember, this is harvest time, because that's when the Midianites have come in. And in the harvest time, there was not rain. It wasn't the rainy season. And... uh, in this area of Palestine, they don't get a ton of rain, and a, de- a, a really actually significant amount of the water they get for their crops comes from dew. And so in the desert climate, in the evenings, at night, the temperature cools down, and the west wind blows off the Mediterranean Sea. And almost like a kind of a mist would come up from the sea, and so a lot of times then this heavy, heavy dew would be on the ground. And that would actually, some plants would depend on that for their source of water. And then as soon as the sun comes up, right, the sun's going to get hot and that's all going to evaporate very quickly. So what Gideon has in mind here is if he puts this uh, basically sponge down on the ground, that that should be wet if there's a heavy dew. And of course, because the stone around it is in a hard surface, non-absorbent, uh, the, the water will be dried up because the sun comes out. So what he's asking for is sort of like you or me asking for a cloudy day in March, right? And it, you know, it's pretty decent chances you're going to get it. It's not something miraculous. We wouldn't say, oh, we've never seen a cloudy day in March in Indiana. 
so he's asking for this the situation. It's still a sign, you know, it might be a day where it's a little warmer at night and you don't get as much dew. And, and so it is a sign of sorts, but it's not anything supernatural that he's asking for. And so verse 38 tells us uh, God uh, allowed it to be uh, exactly as he said, and it was so. And, and it was a heavy dew that night, so much so that he could take the fleece as it absorbed that moisture and he could wring it out and there was a bowl full of water. So God sent a very heavy dew that night. So that seems to be confirming. But Gideon's not satisfied. In verse 39, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more. Uh, is this reminiscent of Abraham uh, pleading for Sodom and his nephew Lot. You remember he starts out negotiating with 50. If there's 50 righteous people, won't you spare the city? He gets it down to 10. And it's probably what is going on here. Probably the second sign was really what he was after. He's kind of working up to it. So the second sign is a miracle. It's not the kind of thing that would ever happen naturally because if you have enough dew that the stone surface has liquid on it, you certainly would have moisture in your fleece. So having the fleece dry, but moisture on the ground is asking for God to suspend the laws of nature, to work above and beyond them, to unambiguously show Gideon God had the power and was going to use it in their behalf. And verse 40 tells us God did so. God did so. Now, Gideon was putting God to the test, and he shouldn't have done that. But I think Gideon often gets a bad rap from commentators who say that he's just trying to get out of doing what God told him to do. He, he's trying to get God uh, to tell him, no, you don't have to do this. I, I don't think so. In, in verse 39, you see how he approaches the Lord. Do not be angry with me. Let me speak only once more. He's humble. He realizes what he's asking for is a big thing. And I don't think God would have answered his request like this if he had been asking out of a bad motive or asking for the wrong thing. And so basically what we need to see here is that God condescends to do this miracle, to build up this man's faith when he needed it most. As commentator Barry Webb says, Gideon was struggling, but God did not condemn him for it, rather gave him what he needed. And Ralph Davis says, God is not ashamed to stoop down and reassure us in our fears. And I think that's really encouraging. Uh, sadly, you know, if somebody were to say from this, well, I, I can say to God, God, if you want me to stay married to this person, then uh, have him bring me flowers, you know, this today or whatever. This is, this is an abuse of God's providence because we know what we are supposed to do from God's word, from the counsel of other Christians. So we have to be very careful here about what lesson we take away from Gideon. The point for us is to be overwhelmed with God's condescension and love his compassion for his people, that God humbles himself to our level because we are needy. And so this slogan, live boldly, doesn't help us as much 
as celebrate God who is compassionate and tender-hearted and who comes down to minister to us even when we struggle with our faith. And, and that's, that describes every one of us at one time or another. And what's so wonderful is you don't have to ask God to do a miracle. That's, that's not what you should be doing to confirm your faith. God uses his word. God uses the sacraments. God uses the ministry of the church and the people around us. There are many ways that God comes to you and shows his power to you to reassure your wavering faith when you're dealing with these kinds of challenges. So praise God that he patiently bears with you even when your faith falters. And finally, we want to ask the Lord to bolster our wavering faith by showing us more of his son. Now, have you ever wondered why Gideon chose this sign? You know, why not ask for two consecutive nights of shooting stars or an earthquake or an eclipse or any number of things? Why is it that Gideon chooses this? Well, he's chosen this, you remember, because Baal is thought to be the god of this land, the one who provides the water and, and the production of the crops and the animals and all of it. All their prosperity is due to Baal. Yes, Yahweh was a god of the desert. Yahweh was the god who brought them out of Egypt, who brought them through the desert, who brought them into this land. But now Baal is the God you rely on in this land. That, this is what the people were saying. This is what Gideon's own family was saying and doing. And so Gideon is wanting to know, God, are you the God who does the impossible in this land, in this place? Are you actually the one who provides the water and controls nature? And, and this is what God's doing. God is showing that he is the God, the real God, over this land. And so when he makes that fleece dry and the ground wet, he's showing his absolute power, his ability to do the impossible. And isn't that exactly what God does for us? How can God maintain his righteousness and yet forgive you. How, how's that even possible? It's only possible because God punishes his son and forgives you. He does the impossible through the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it possible that the dead can rise again and live forever? It's not possible with us, but it's possible with him. It's possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. God shows you that he can do the impossible through the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the most awesome display of God's power. And when your faith wavers, what you need is a clearer vision of Jesus Christ. You need to see the Lord Jesus more clearly his perfections his love his condescension his suffering 
his power, his nearness to you, his authority. And yes, that he is the one whose faith never faltered. He is the one who obeyed without delay, without doubt, so that you and I could be saved from our sin. When your faith falters, you don't need a miraculous sign. You need to see the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's already done for you. And, and he is available to you. You see him through the word. You see him through the worship. You see him through the sacraments, through the ministry of the saints. Jesus once in working with a man whose son was possessed by a demon, told the man, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's the prayer we need to give when our faith is faltering. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Show me more of yourself. And Jesus promises that a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering flax he will not snuff out, that the Lord is in the business of helping those whose faith is weak and wavering. This is what Gideon needed. He needed to see God's power. He needed to be reminded of who was with him in this task. He needed the Spirit's power, but in his moment of truth, he needed to be reassured. And this is true for you and for me also. And you can give thanks this morning that God is in the business of encouraging you when your faith wavers. Ask him to show you more of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he may give you whatever boldness you need to do what he's calling you to do. Hebrews 12 says it well, 12.2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one to look to when your faith falters. Let's pray and give him thanks. Father, we confess that it's very easy for us to misunderstand what's going on in this passage. And we pray that you would forgive us to the extent that we may have even abused this passage and used it uh, to seek uh, guidance by obscure providences that really uh, abuse um, the doctrine of providence. We pray rather, Lord, that you would help us to see what is here, a man desperate to have his faith assured and strengthened, who genuinely was needy and who sought help from you in the only way he knew how. And Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to understand that you are the same God who condescends to strengthen our faith and that you would show us how near you are to us that we don't have to ask for some miraculous sign. We, we merely need to ask for faith. We need to ask that you would give us a clearer view of our Savior. Lord, the evidence that you, uh, you are the all-powerful God who does the impossible on behalf of his people is the Lord Jesus, the Lord who hung on the cross uh, taking our sins upon himself, giving his life uh, for us so that we could live forever. That's, that's all we need. We confess that it's so easy uh, for us to lose sight of that. Uh, we pray, Lord, when uh, we reach our moment of truth, we come to these episodes where our faith may waver, that you would help us to turn uh, to you and to do so in hope and in faith, that you would show us again our savior and give us a clearer picture of the lord jesus that we might have the faith that we need 
And Lord, if there, if there are any here who do not yet know you, how we pray that you would open our eyes and show us the Savior, that we would see how compassionate and loving he is, and that we would find salvation in him and know that we can live our life uh, with him uh, working on our behalf at all times. Lord, help us even in the coming week as we face various moments of truth in our own lives that you would guide us and be with us and help us to see our Lord. For we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. And now we'll sing back in praise to the Lord from Psalm 113, Selection C. Uh, I've been advised this is not a familiar tune to us, so uh, we'll uh, do our best to uh, follow along and sing this. Uh, Notice, though, it is a psalm of praise, praise the Lord, and then it acknowledges that God is the one who is on high. In verse 3, stanza 3, sorry, of of the music, who is like our God alone? High in heaven is the Lord enthroned. Uh, But then see what he does. He condescends to know things in heaven and earth below. And then the last two stanzas talk about how he takes the needy and he lifts us out of the dust and raises us up. Uh, This is exactly what God was doing for Gideon, and it's what he does for you and for me. The God of all power condescends then to lift us up with him. Let's sing our praise to him. Let's stand and sing. (laughs) 